our first two episodes on Love's Labour's Lost, we discussed two outstanding qualities of this play, its tremendous humour and its serious moral themes. These three speeches of Barone's highlight the play's comedy and key stylistic elements, while also allowing us to trace Barone's personal maturation. Gordon Teske, Francis Lee Higginson Professor of English Literature at Harvard University, guides our discussion. The first speech comes from the opening scene of the play. The King of Navarre has just asked his three followers to swear an oath to follow a difficult regime of study and self-discipline for three years. In this speech, Barone expresses a comical but insightful scepticism about this oath, but then he signs it too. I can but say their protestation over. So much, dear liege, I have already sworn. That is, to live and study here three years. But there are other strict observances. As not to see a woman in that term, which I hope well is not enrolled there. And one day in a week to touch no food. And but one meal in every day beside, the which I hope is not enrolled there. And then to sleep but three hours in the night and not be seen to wink of all the day when I was wont to think no harm all night and make a dark night too of half the day, which I hope well is not enrolled there. Oh, these are barren tasks, too hard to keep. Not to see ladies, study fast, not sleep. So this is Barone speaking to the king after Longueville and Dumaine have signed this absurd oath, dedicating themselves to live, as they say, in philosophy. So anyone who's had a teenager or been a teenager knows that the funniest word in that last line is not sleep. We have to remember these these young men are probably about 18, and teenagers need a lot of sleep between 10 and 12 hours to the despair and annoyance of their parents probably more than they need ladies, though they've got lots of interest in that as well. So it's especially funny if these are teenaged uh, fellows. First, Barone says, why are you putting us through this signature business? I'm a gentleman. My honor is already committed because I've given my word. And then he starts to quibble, like any poor fellow being sent off to college, half against his will. You can only get those poor fellows to go to college because there's going to be food, opportunity to sleep in, and ladies, right? So he says there are other strict observances, and he goes through them. The first he mentions is not to see a woman in that term, and one day in a week to touch no food, which sounds possible if rather unpleasant, but then to have only one meal a day during that period. Not so hard if you're middle-aged, impossible if you're a teenager. Again, what would be the point of these strictures? The point has to bear on self-knowledge. That is, Navarre doesn't know himself. Navarre shouldn't be thought of in the play as being that much older than a teenager either. You know, it doesn't quite work if you have middle-aged male actors playing these parts. They really have to be young. And it shows just lack of self-knowledge about what it's like to be that age. Stylistically, the, the rhythm of repetition, there are those extra conditions that are there. And so he gets to say, which, well, I hope is not enrolled there. Which, well, I hope is not enrolled there. The repetition is quite attractive. And a good actor will be able to deliver each one either, either differently 
for comic effect, or exactly the same for comic effect. Either which, well, I hope is not enrolled there, which, well, I hope is not enrolled there, etc. Or which, well, I hope is not enrolled there, which, well, I hope is not enrolled there, increasingly. And then finally, which, well, I hope is not enrolled there. Beautiful conclusion to the speech. It's like a school exercise. A lot of parody of school exercises in this play, by the way. You know, the love letter of Don Armado is full of actual grammar exercises with prepositions and pronouns and the like. We end with a, with that classic couplet, which means that the whole speech is being delivered just in time as on a conveyor belt. Oh, these are barren tasks, too hard to keep, not to see ladies, study fast, not sleep. It's all beautifully concluded. Shakespeare gets much more naturalistic later in his career. Actually, I say later in his career, but really only a few years after these plays, when he's writing the second tetralogy of histories, you slide into speeches with a naturalness in those later plays. You end more formally, often with a couplet, but he's very good at making speeches. You, you hardly know you're in the middle of an important speech until you're a few lines in. In these plays, he's still drawing sharper lines around things. Every speech begins almost like an aria you know, in opera. Singers in opera will, will speak of how you have to park and bark. You, know, you, you come out, you park, you wait for the right chord, and you, and you start to bark. These are more park and bark speeches than naturalistic ones. The second speech comes from the climatic Act 4, Scene 3. The four men have just learned that they have all broken their oaths and fallen in love with the four ladies of France. The king has asked Barone to prove our loving lawful and our faith not torn, to find some excuse that will justify breaking their oath. Barone responds with this virtuosic speech that elevates love above humanistic study, but also uses the rhetorical tools of humanism. Consider what you first did swear on to, to fast, to study, and to see no woman. Flat treason against a kingly state of youth. Say, can you fast? Your stomachs are too young, and abstinence engenders maladies. Oh, we have made a vow to study, lords, and in that vow we have forsworn our books. For when would you, my liege, or you, or you... In leaden contemplation have found out such fiery numbers as the prompting eyes of beauty's tutors have enriched to you with. Other slow arts entirely keep the brain, and therefore finding barren practices scarce show a harvest of their heavy toil. But love, first learned in a lady's eyes, lives not alone immured in the brain, but with the motion of all elements. Courses as swift as thought in every power, and gives to every power a double power, above the function of their offices. It adds a precious scene to the eye. A lover's eyes will gaze an eagle blind. A lover's ears will hear the lowest sound. When the suspicious head of theft is stopped, Love's feeling is more soft and sensible than are the tender horns of cockled snails. And when love speaks, the voice of all gods make heaven drowsy with the harmony. 
Never durst poet touch a pen to write until his ink were tempered with love's sighs. Oh, then his lines would ravish savage ears and plant in tyrants mild humility. From women's eyes this doctrine I derive. They sparkle still the right Promethean fire. They are the books, the arts, the academes that show, contain, and nourish all the world. So this speech, which is Barone speaking to the king Longueville and Domain, is funny, of course, because of the situation in Act 4, Scene 3, especially since the occasion for the speech is the king almost bleating like a lamb in requesting that Barone figure some way to get them out of their oaths so that they can woo these girls of France. And so Barone, in a way, they're parodies of law students as well. They're like law students. That fits with the humanist program. Many of Shakespeare's plays were often performed at the ends of court. The beginning of theater in this period was done by law students. The early plays occurred at the ends of court. They used plays as ways of practicing oration in court, arguing cases. And so there's this close relationship between the law profession and, and plays all along. So now, in effect, Barone is like the editor of the law review, the smartest of his fellow students, and he's inspecting this contract they've signed closely to look for ways of undoing it. So imagine him in a courtroom. He's making the case, we, the audience, are the jury, and this is his peroration. From women's eyes, this doctrine I derive, they sparkle still the right Promethean fire. They are the books. Here it comes, the wind-up. They are the books, the arts, the academes that show, contain, and nourish all the world. You must acquit. The style of the speech, you notice, is quite, quite different. It doesn't have those alternating rhymes and then rhyming couplets. There's a lot more enjambment. Shakespeare has moved into blank verse, and it's like the blank verse will come to dominate his career later on. As if at that point, uh, just when he's supposed to be smart about looking closely at the contract and figuring out how to pick it apart and find contradictions in it, it's as if it's as if his passion and inspiration carries him away, and he's he's trying to blow the contract away by force of eloquence, because actually logic and legal reasoning isn't going to do it. There's no way out with those things. You, there's no clever way out of this contract. You just have to convince a jury. So I think that Barone performing this speech shouldn't be speaking to the King of Navarre and his fellows entirely. He should be speaking to us, to the, to the audience. I know you're judging me out there, and you think there's no way out of this contract. Well, I've got some things to say to you. I want you to listen. <laughs> and flat treason against the kingly state of youth. He will only get a laugh from an audience if he's standing looking at the audience, pleading, pleading to them, perhaps sweeping an arm back. Us, the kingly state of youth. So it's a swaggering speech, and it's fun for that reason as well. And then he has the, the key point in the speech, which comes about where he says, for when would you, and he's now turning, Actually, this is director's choice or actor's choice. He's turning to Navarre 
Dumaine and Longueville, when would you, or you, or you, but he could also be picking people out in the audience, for when would you, or you, or you, so that's an opportunity to interact with the audience, in leaden contemplation, which is to say studying books, have found out such fiery numbers as the prompting eyes of beauty's tutors have enriched you with. Now we don't have regular tutors. The ladies we love are our tutors. They're the tutors qualified by their beauty, and their eyes have enriched us with a kind of wisdom that we can't get from books. You're, you're better people for being in love, and you could have labored over your books for three years, and you wouldn't be any better. You'd be considerably worse. You'd be a conceited ass like Holofernes or Don Armado. <laughs> I mean, this was a very pedantical society. The humanist learning would, was a way to, um, to lord it over others. And here's Shakespeare arriving in London, and he's, he's um, a country bumpkin in comparison to the circles that he is moving in, which eventually include aristocratic circles. Everybody has university education. They're very proud of it. The very unwelcoming Robert Greene, who despised Shakespeare, wrote M.A. on everything that he ever wrote or published. So he made himself as learned as them by assiduous study in his early years there, and no doubt before. So he is a low not a low, but a realistic opinion of the value of spending three years in leaden contemplation. And then the turn, but love, first learned in a lady's eyes, lives not alone in mirror in the brain, but with the motion of all elements. Hear the way the, the thing takes off like an aircraft. The speech is just getting airborne the moment he turns, because up to this point, it's been, it's been forceful, but it's been point by point. He's taken us through it. And then, but love, first learned in a lady's eyes, lives not alone and mirrored in the brain, but with the motion of all elements, courses as swift as thought in every power and gives to every power a double power above the function of their offices. There's no pause at the end of the lines. They run straight on. And you think it's going to end about three lines before it does. So you have that feeling of lift that carries you higher still. And then he turns to poetry. Never durst poet touch a pen to write until his ink were tempered with love's size. What is the highest manifestation of learning? According to humanism, it should be that you become a great minister of state, a powerful person. Shakespeare, no, it's to be a poet. To be a poet is the highest attainment of learning. And few people with a great deal of learning can get that. Learning has a, you might say, an inclined, is an inclined slope to most of the things in this life that you can do with it. If you learn this, you can do this. If you learn this much, you can do that. You go up. But poetry, while you can't be a poet without learning, it's not on that inclined slope. You can't say, I'm training to be a poet. It's, it's a higher calling altogether. It has something sublime in it. And this is the 16th century, so love and the sublimity of poetry are closely allied. And then we have that great phrase, the right Promethean fire. Prometheus stole fire from heaven for humans. The fire that is in heaven in Shakespeare's day was the empureon, which is a Greek word that means literally in fire, because the heavens were said to have a level of fire around 
just outside the sky. Poets soar into the Empyrean. Milton would speak of a poet of, of imperial conceit. So it's the fire that the poets can fly up to in the heavens and bring back for us. I guess every poet is a sort of Prometheus giving us this fire of great insight. This speech comes from the last scene in the play. The ladies have just revealed that they knew the masked Muscovites were really the king and his lords, and that they just found this jest ridiculous. The men decide to confess about their disguises, and Barone decides to stop disguising his feelings for Rosaline and confess that he truly loves her. But Rosaline still detects some jesting element in his speech. Taffeta phrases, silken terms precise, three piled hyperboles, sprouse affectation, figures pedantical, these summer flies have blown me full of maggot ostentation. I do forswear them. And here, I protest. By this white glove, how white the hand, God knows. Henceforth my wooing mind shall be expressed in russet ye's and honest kissing nose. And to begin, wench, so God help me, law. My love to thee is sound. Sans crack or flaw. Sans sans, I pray you. Yet I have a trick of the old rage. Bear with me. I am sick. Barone is confessing to Rosaline that a lot of what she sees as being wrong with him isn't so much cruelty or unkindness to others as it is the simple love of language in itself, the love of playing with language. But for Rosaline, for the princess, I dare say for every good woman in Shakespeare, words have a purpose. They're not to be played with. For many men in Shakespeare, words are to be played with like toys, but the women are more serious. You must say what you mean with words, and simplicity is better than affected fantasy. So Baron is confessing to Rosaline. I get it. I've been involved in this game of language in this play, and I'm giving it up. But of course, he's Barone. So in giving it up, he shows how much he loves what he is giving up. He makes another volcanic display of words in the very act of seeming to renounce them. With his long list of Latinate terms and redundant, fanciful synonyms, Barone shows that he loves copious language just as much as Holofernes and Amado do. Taffeta phrases, silken terms precise, three-piled hyperboles, spruce affectation, figures pedantical, these summer flies have blown me full of maggot ostentation. I do forswear them, and I here protest by this white glove, white the hand, God knows. Henceforth my wooing mind shall be expressed in russet yeas and honest cursy nose. And to begin, wench, so God help me, law, my love to thee is sound, sans crack or flaw. Using the French word without uh, sans is taken as an affectation as well, even though they are in France. I think Russet Yeas and Honest Cursey Knows is going to sound very well in the audience, in an English audience who, who prides itself in being no-nonsense 
russets are the, the kinds of clothes that don't have expensive dye in them. Kersey is a kind of fabric as well. The russet yeas and honest kersey noses. We're going to be, we're not Frenchmen anymore. I'm going to turn into an Englishman. That's essentially what he's saying. And I'm not going to use all those fancy words with maggot ostentation. And so that's why he calls her wench, because he thinks that's, you know, it's not a, it's not a negative word. It's often a word of um, affection, but it's also a word for lower class woman. But what he's really saying is, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you as, as boy to girl now. And that for him is part of the russet. Yay. And to begin, wench. So God help me, law. My love to thee is sound. It's not saying anything fancy. He's not saying it flies up into the heavens and not saying that he can, with the love that she inspires him, he has sharper eyesight than an eagle. He's just saying, my, I mean it. It's sound. It's not put on. My love to thee is sound. Sam's crack or flaw. And she, she's, been, she's been quietly waiting for something she can, she can peek. Hmm? And so she says, Sands, sands, I pray you. Isn't that beautifully witty, too? Sands, sands, I pray you. Oh, yet have I the trick of the old rage. Bear with me, I am, I am sick. He doesn't try to outsmart her now. He simply responds with humorous humility. Oh, there I go again. But bear with me. I'm sick, but I'll get better. I'm sick with words. He's not sick of words, on the contrary, <laughs> he showed that he's far from sick of words, but he's sick with words. Barone's acknowledgement that I am sick shows that he is growing in self-knowledge. The term sick also foreshadows what Rosaline will say to him later in this scene, just before the play ends and the lovers part. Here, Barone has attempted to show Rosaline that his wit isn't meant to be unkind. It simply comes from his love of playing with language. But later, Rosaline will remind him that wit is to be judged by the hearer, not the speaker. And far too often, his wit is full of wounding flouts that hurt the people who hear him. And so she tells him to visit the speechless sick and use his wit to lighten their pain. She hopes that this trial will in turn cure him of being sick with words. And Barone agrees. Befall what will befall, I'll jest a twelve-month in a hospital. Which suggests he is getting better already. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Esmond Cole for Barone. I can but say their protestation over. Consider what you first did swear unto, and to feta phrases, silken terms precise. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. William C. Carroll, A Modern Perspective, Love's Labor's Lost. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. And the following editions of Love's Labor's Lost the 1997 Riverside Shakespeare, the 2008 RSC Shakespeare, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about the show by visiting shakespeareforall.com. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. 
Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. Thanks for listening. See you next time.